Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. Ellie Mistal is not with us today again, unfortunately, but we do have our standard co-host who fills in whenever Ellie is gone, which is unfortunately has been more frequently of late, Catherine Rubino. How are you? Hey there, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. So... Welcome back to the show. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me back. Well, thank thanks for being back. And thanks to Smith AI, of course, who is our sponsor. And we are going to do another episode. We don't really have an agenda today. We have guests for the next couple of weeks. But right now, we are just going to kind of have a chat about legal news. I think we might uh, we might follow a similar format to last time. It was fun. Kind of did a a quick fire, hear some hot topics in the legal news right now, and get your take and my take on the various issues. So I have a couple of questions I've prepared. Yeah, that's awesome. And I do too. What I like about that was I was going to say like, sometimes I kind of forget that people don't necessarily listen to us every episode. They should. You should be subscribing to this show and you should be giving it reviews and all that sort of thing. But some people don't listen to every single episode. And so they might have they might have needed that refresher. Uh, that you just provided for what we did last episode. Because sometimes you miss things, and then you need to know about them. Like, are you missing calls? Are you spread too thin? Interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month, Get a free trial at smith.ai. So we have some questions you're saying. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? I think we're kind of, we both have. Both have a few questions. I don't mind starting. Do you want to put a couple of minutes on the clock? All right. Okay. Go for it. Okay. The first question is, we're about a year out from the 2008 big law salary hikes. Oh. Uh, yeah. Some analysts have suggested that that kind of cash outlay is finally catching up to some of the firms and that they will be much harsher when it comes to uh, underperforming associates and practice groups. Do you think more layoffs are coming to big law? Well, that's actually two questions in my mind. I think being more harsh towards underperforming associates, this is something that we tagged at the time. Uh, There was a move for these firms to up their numbers, and that's their salary numbers, and that's great. And for the elite firms, that was probably necessary, but everybody kind of followed, and that means that you lose something. For the elite firms- Yeah, about 100 firms wound up actually increasing last year. Yeah, and when, when they do that, the firms that are- in the AMLA 50 or so, and really, really making the big bucks, they can afford that and they actually need to afford that in order to compete for that talent. Firms that are lagging behind in their revenue, you know, they're trying to keep up with those Joneses days, (laughs) but they are just putting a situation where they have to make some changes. Sometimes those firms' success in generating talent was not pay, but being able to say, we pay less but you only have to work 1,800 hours. When you match the pay, you change that culture. And sometimes not necessarily for the best. If Mm. you're going to force people to do 2,000 hours a year, no matter where you are, then maybe you may as well just stay at the big firm instead of going to the smaller one. Or not even smaller, but mid-sized one. I mean, what do you think about the layoff side, which I thought was a kind of a separate question. Do you see layoffs coming? 
Well, I mean, I, I think that they're somewhat related because I think oftentimes, particularly in big law, there's the notion of stealth layoffs where a firm isn't announcing and they're not kind of doing across the board layoffs, but all of a sudden, you know, practices or performances that may have easily gotten a pass in boom years, all of a sudden people find themselves laid off. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for the economic uh downturn that I think a lot of us think is coming. Uh, Especially this earlier this week, we learned a little bit more about the finances of some of the big firms. And we saw that that while this was actually one of the better quarters and end of years of last year that big laws seen in a while, it still was largely driven by increasing billing rates. And at a certain point, that elasticity is going to wear out. Uh, And when demand is not really going up all that much and definitely not going up that much for all the mid-tier terms, mid-tier firms, sorry, (laughs) that, and and those are exactly the sorts of firms that followed when they probably shouldn't have, uh, that's going to cause some problems, I think. I digress. So that's kind of the separate question. And yeah, I think there's probably related, but I think I'm more worried about the change in culture in the short term for those those firms. And then over the long term, I'm worried about the other. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, the international. Oh, okay. Is that are you, you going to go? Yeah, I kind of thought I. Oh, did. I thought I would. I just go thought first. that we were trying to be fair here. Well, I, I thought I would do all my questions first. I mean, we're all going to have a chance to talk eventually. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I mean, I didn't know that you were so sensitive to. Yeah. No, I am. So uh, <laughs> we also got this week a list out of Law Three Hundred and Sixty of the biggest law firms, just like a straight list of headcount. Who's the biggest law firms? This is a ranking. Obviously, rankings get attention. Is this a useful ranking? Nope. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I mean, where's that air horn? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that it, it is, I guess, informational and kind of a, a neat trivia question to find out which law firm is physically, you know, has the largest headcount or something like that. But it doesn't really seem to have too big of an impact on their practice areas or something like that. I think that profitability measurements are far more important when you're trying to suss out who are the best of the best kind of law firms. And, you know, obviously, headcounts can help in profitability, but it's not necessary, particularly if they're paying so much to associates, it, it may not be particularly relevant. Um, and, you know, it's different business models, and it's kind of comparing apples to oranges. You know, some law firms have one or two offices very focused in New York and D.C. You know, Wachtell is very tiny. Compared, <laughs> certainly compared to some yeah, of Yeah, I mean, they, I think they have the second smallest law firm in terms of headcount in the Amlaw 100. Themselves and Cahill are both under 300 attorneys. But they're both profitable. They're still in the Amlaw, at the top of the Amlaw. And I'm not sure that that really matters when you're talking about some of these international Varens and some of these very large firms. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it's at best an indirect indicator, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's an indicator. I also think this is one of those indicators that meant more during the you know, during the aughts when we had that high-pressure growth phase mm-hmm. where everyone believed the the only way to success was more growth. And it's not to say there aren't firms following aggressive growth strategies now, but I think this is where our friend, a friend of the show, Bruce McEwen's uh, growth, is, growth is Dead, Now What book comes in. We've turned a tipping point where just inexorable growth is not the way in which a law firm can build its way to success consistently. And now that we're at that point, are these sorts of rankings really not that useful, at least directly, because just because a firm's managed to grow a lot doesn't necessarily mean it has a success. I agree. Yeah. So now it's my turn again? Oh, Yeah. 
Do you want the? Do you like the air horn? Do you want to try something else? I don't know. I, I, I mean, you want to mix up the soundboard here a little. I, mean, I, I don't know. You like, could go for it. I don't even you know, know, like what the what, world is your oyster. Joe I Bruce. just feel like the air horn makes sense in like a. Well, no, it's getting that was wow. I that poor, sounded like is that a poor performance of an air horn right there? That was a poor performance of an air well, horn. I never, I never touted myself as an as air an horn as an air horn artist. Yeah. yeah, no, I but I just I don't know. I was just thinking like. All right, yeah, go sound, ahead. Mix know. it up. Go ahead. All right. Let's see. All, All right. right. So let me ask you the question first. Um, okay. The International Bar Association, in conglomeration with uh, the market research company Acritus, put out a survey, the, the results of which they put out this week, about sexual harassment and bullying in the legal industry. It's a global survey, and one-third of female attorneys globally say they've been sexually harassed at work. Are you surprised by that number? One-third? One-third. Not really. Yeah. I, if anything, maybe that it, that it's that's only actually over a third. third. I guess it's thirty six point six percent of women. Which I mean, that's uh, I mean, I think that it's. I'm not particularly surprised by that information, uh, but I also think that it should be surprising, and we should be horrified by that number. And some of the the breakdowns were even worse. Those who said that they had government legal jobs, women uh, in government legal jobs reported fifty two point five percent of women said they had been sexually harassed, and in legal jobs within the judiciary. Forty-six point six percent of women yeah. said that they were sexually harassed. I think that uh, yes, those are horrible numbers. Yeah, although it doesn't it doesn't actually shock me that the government and judiciary are worse. Really, I, I thought that those were particularly surprising. I mean, it seems to me like people who work at the government and or judiciary should be more aware of sexual harassment. They've probably gotten trainings, mandatory trainings, uh, and get pamphlets and such. Uh, I was a little you, surprised. You by got that. the word "should" in there, and that's sure. true. But sure. I mean, what we saw, what we have been seeing in the federal judiciary, uh, just to take Which one a, small yeah, sure. segment. Because, again, these were global numbers. These but. are these are power positions and positions kind of ultimate authority, and people abuse those. And mm-hmm. I think that with state judges, it's increasingly worse, too, because it's by a factor worse because you're dealing with people there who are elected, so they're politicians, too. They mm-hmm. already have built in that egotistical belief that everything should flow to them, uh, which is problematic. I think that the government side, you deal with a bunch of people who think they're never going to get fired, so they stick around forever. Whereas in the corporate world, I, I do think as bad as it is, there's an increased attention upon it. There are structures that people believe you must have in those mm-hmm. worlds, and more oversight, which certainly doesn't solve the problem, as those numbers say, but is yeah. why it's slightly better than actually, the Actually, I think law firms actually perform the best. In-house legal yeah. departments had 42% of women reporting sexual harassment. Wow. Uh, I counted still... law firms as corporate in okay. that they're Fair entities enough. that operate like sure. that, but good point. Yeah, and, and bigger law firms appear to be slightly better as well. But it, it was a kind of interesting to me. And I think you're right that there's sort of these fiefdoms in some of these government offices that apparently is allowing terrible harassment to come. But hopefully this serves as some measure of a wake-up call within the industry. Yeah, I mean, for people trying to get into this industry, this is, which we do have several pre-law listeners, uh, this is an unfortunate uh, reality right. that still is out there. That's something certainly to be aware of, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, information is always good. Being aware that, you know, just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you're immune from sexual harassment. You can experience it. It is potentially a part of your professional career. And to be aware of that before you start your career is probably useful. Ooh. Yeah. I like All right. it. Like that? All right. All right. Well, we'll, 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 we'll keep testing things out. So big story this week that a lot of people are still arguing about. Uh, Ron Sullivan, who's a professor at Harvard Law School, faced some student protest. He is also, in addition to being a law professor, he was a dean at the undergraduate Harvard Institution when basically that put him in charge of a dorm. Uh, 
sort of. Uh, that's It's a weird system, whatever, we roll with it. But that's a thing that he also did. He briefly took on the Harvey Weinstein representation. Uh, there were some protests over that. Well. Uh, and it resulted in the school taking away his deanship, but he remains obviously a professor at Harvard Law sure. School. So there's been a lot of attention and hand-wringing uh, in editorials and social media all over the place about how this is wrong and people's Sixth Amendment rights are being trampled upon and they're, you know, we're letting the mob dictate whether or not you get to have a lawyer what do you take on that? I, I wrote a story about yeah. this, so we know I mean, mine. I, yeah, and I don't, I don't disagree with you and, uh, fundamentally, but I mean, I, I think this is very analogous to big law partner who wants to represent a client, but the rest of the partnership says you can't. There's a con, a pre-existing conflict because we have these other pre-existing clients. It happens all the time in big law. You can't just have any client you want. You have to go through client checks, and sometimes you know firewalling you off from from it is is insufficient. That happens a lot. It's a reality of the the sort of legal industry. And I think that this is that kind of an example. I think that when you're put in a position where you're responsible for listening to and potentially responding to people's complaints of harassment and sexual assault, uh, to turn around and represent somebody who has been credibly accused repeatedly of the worst kinds of sexual harassment and assault, you know, I think that there's a real problem there. And how how is a student supposed to be comfortable going to the person that they were supposed to report sexual harassment and assault to when they've come out in support of Harvey Weinstein. Well, and that's uh, that's more or less kind of my take. The issue is, and you say these conflicts, and I think these conflicts are critical. Mm -hmm. It's not that he can't represent Harvey Weinstein. Nobody's mad at Jose Baez, who's also Harvey Weinstein's lawyer. Nobody's mad at him for representing Harvey Weinstein. Like, you may disagree with him, but nobody's, like, lining up to protest him. Why? Because he doesn't have a reason not to. He's a criminal defense lawyer. That's all he is. In this case, Sullivan was just given kind of the choice of, like, well, if you're going to hold this job, you can't be doing this. And that's it. And that's totally fair. That's why you said the firm partnership, which I think mm -hmm. is a great analogy. We're dealing with a situation where a person is taking a paycheck and a title to do something and then turning around and doing something that interferes with that. And the people who pay him the first job have absolutely the right to say, I think there's a problem with you taking that. I had to hit the air horn again, sorry. I, I, I should have I should mixed have like, mixed bit. it up. Okay. You know, I mean, okay. I understand. All right, go, right. go, go, go. Okay, so uh, according to papers filed by the government in the Greg Craig case, uh, Skadden appears to have hired Paul Manafort's daughter to, in order to secure Manafort's Ukraine business. Mm. Uh, are you surprised? Do you think this kind of a quid pro quo is, is unusual within big law? Uh, I don't know as though it's unusual. I, you know. Is it I guess I've never been on a hiring committee of a big law firm, so I guess I don't really know, but it seems a little odd. Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's quid pro quo or just, you know, like... Scratching friendly, one's Friendly, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, apparently uh, Craig had written an actual email after she'd been rejected from the firm saying, you know, we really kind of need this, which it seemed a little, yeah. little above. But it also kind of struck me that... Given all the problems of this Ukrainian business, you know, uh, the firm has has filed has paid some some. Yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Like money. I'm just happy that you're looking for a word because for a second I thought you had a stroke. <laughs> I was like, she's just staring. No, they had they've had, they've paid money because sanction. No, oh, they, they. I mean they they've been fined. Yeah, that's like, the they, word. Yeah, I was yeah okay. For, oh yeah. my gosh, it's like the tiniest little word. 
I just did not have it there. But they've been fined money. Um, One of their former associates uh, has been convicted of lying to investigators as a former of counsel. Greg Craig is under, has been arrested and was indicted and is going to trial about similar offenses, all stemming from the same Ukrainian engagement. Uh, It seems like it was not really worth it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I I don't know. Like, I I think it is problematic the way in which these sorts of decisions get made at the higher levels of all manners of privilege. But like, I don't necessarily know as though it was at the, you know, well, how it was, nefarious it was. But. Uh, sure. I, I don't think, you know, there's anything like per se wrong about it. Um, I just think it kind of flies in the face of sort of the meritocracy oh, yeah. myth that a lot of big law firms seem to operate under. Well, that's that's fair. Do yeah. we believe that the legal world is truly a meritocracy? No. No. Yeah, no, I think that's that. That is absolutely true. What was that? Duck. It, I guess it sounded like a man coughing slash a duck. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's fine, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So the last one I have is the Alabama abortion law that just came down. Uh, putting aside all substantive matters of this, let's just dispassionately look at this as attorneys. If you're trying to you know, deal with, if you're one of those people who sees the Supreme Court as now open to overturning things, is this law a good strategic move? Uh, No. I mean, just as a matter of sort of strategy, it seems problematic because it's an outright ban. It's not sort of that slow decreasing of the reproductive freedom, but, you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of mentality, which I think is been very successful for anti-choice activists. This is very different than that. It seems to me, you know, kind of pushing in where uh, the job is already being done by other states and, and other kind of terrible, in my yeah. opinion, laws. But I think that this kind of goes a step too far. I don't think that, uh, I think that, you know, putting Chief Justice Roberts as the center of the court now, I think that this kind of a law is going to be much more troublesome for him to affirm than, it's more of these kind of uh, these other laws that just put extreme burdens on women who are seeking to uh, to use their rights. Yeah, it it just struck me that there's not a good strategy here in right. that you've got a court that has already made clear that they're willing to entertain restrictions that didn't exist before, and to jump that extra mile now you've put Roberts, somebody who cares about the institutional strength of the court. Like mm-hmm. Shelby County is a good example here, right? There was an opportunity theoretically to get rid of the Voting Rights Act, but he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to invite all that that would. So he messed with the preclearance carved rules, it. right? Then carved it like this is this is what the court is now mm-hmm. prepared to do for you if this is your ultimate goal. Why would you engage in a, a strategy a litigation strategy and make no mistake this bill is a litigation strategy. There's no plan that it's ever going to go into effect. It's just a litigation strategy. If this is your goal, then I don't see how as a litigation strategy this makes any sense because you need to read the room and read what you can get and start tailoring your arguments to get where it needs to go. And the court, I think, my take was um, any one of those various gifs slash gifs, uh, depending on which pronunciation you want to believe, the correct one or the wrong one. Um, <laughs> but the uh, any one of those about missing the point where like a point gets thrown and somebody ducks, like that's that's what I feel happened coming out of cases like Shelby County, 
Janus, and this week, the Hyatt case, they were signaling that they're willing to hear restrictions, even though they've they've had issues with them before, not the go whole hog argument. Yeah, I mean, as, as a strategy, I think that the sort of heartbeat bills that have become very yeah. popular are likely to be much more successful. Yeah. This just threw a wrench in a litigation strategy that mm-hmm. had been kind of rolling forward successfully, I, I mean, it's been absolutely devastating yeah. for many women across this country. Well, sure. Again, I said, put aside all that, just sure. talk uh, about well, it that, as that, litigators. That is proof that it is a very effective right. strategy, is yeah. what I'm saying. as litigators, yeah, that's there. I hear what you're saying. Okay, then. Yeah. Uh, next question. So, according to data collected by ALM as part of their AMLA 100 ranking, uh, it was revealed that the firm with the highest number of billable hours per attorney, Fish and Richardson, mm-hmm. uh, that number, the average number of billable hours per lawyers at that firm is 1916 hours a year. Are you surprised that that number, is it high, is it low? What do we think about that? That's the highest? That is the average highest, right? Okay, so taking everything, that average is the highest. Yeah, I think I, I'm a little shocked. I would think somewhere just barely north of 2000 was the average. That and this is up from last year's uh, yeah. average high. And I think that what's also important, why this calling attention to this number, I think is pretty important is because lots of firms have billable hour requirements to get yeah. your bonuses, right? 2000 hours is not unheard of in order to get your bonuses. And at the firm that has the highest billable hours per lawyer, it is under 2000. Mm. So that means that if a firm has a 2,000-hour cap, a lot of people are not going to hit that mark. Well, let me pull back on that. Now, that's all lawyers. See, I think that a lot mm. of partners are the people who are in oh, the below level. That would be my guess. A lot of more high-quality hours, but not as many. In terms of more profitable hours. Hour, yes. High-quality, high-effort hours, but less time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, I think, something to be aware of when you're kind of thinking about whether or not you're likely to make your hours, whatever those requirements may be. You know, sure, you might be right that it, it is motivated by a lot of the more senior attorneys who are less worried about what their billable requirements are. But you know, everyone thinks, oh, well, I'll just work those hours as if, you know, all hours come magically from the work gods. And sometimes it's hard to make hours, not through any fault of an associate, but rather because of the work that's available at that moment or that year. And it, it may not be their fault. And if you have a pretty draconian bonus policy, it's easy to find yourself on the wrong side of that. Yeah. Well, I have no more questions, so... Oh, I have another one. Oh, cool. You ready? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, ooh. Um, yeah, that was, that's uh, kind of scary. I don't really like dogs. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. That's why I did it. <laughs> no, course. go on. Of course. Okay. Um, also part of the uh, AMLA 100 uh, data, now just 16 AMLA 100 firms have a single tier of partnership. Ah. Why? And that's because of the rise of sort of income partners, people mm-hmm. who make, I think as defined by ALM, more than 50% of their annual income on a fixed basis. Uh, why have income partnerships taken off? Why are they so popular in big law right now? I think that there's a drive to de-equitize that's uh, probably detrimental to the profession as a profession, mm-hmm. but it is very helpful to the profession as a business model. corporate <laughs> business. I, I don't necessarily know about business model, but definitely if, if you want to run a law firm that is we're going to scorched earth, get as much money as we can and get out, uh, then this is the most effective way. It allows you to consolidate the actual profits to a smaller and smaller group of people. And you can also drag along a lot of people who, like, basically, it's the people who years ago would be counsel 
But that, you know, people then go, oh, council, that's not a partner. So instead, they just call them all partners, and some of them get money and some of them don't. And it's unfortunate. I think it's kind of demeaning to the structure that this profession has operated on for a long time, but that's where Sure, it, it kind is. of undermines the supposed collegiality of a partnership. Right. Yes, uh, I think that's the way. But it also allows some firms to say that their partnership is diverse, even though those people may well, not be full equity partners. Right, and that's the bad thing, right? 100%. Yeah, like they're, 100%. they're hiding diversity. Yeah. They're hiding their failure to diversify by saying that they're partners, mm -hmm. quote, unquote. Right, but they're creating a lower tier where yeah. they're able to sort of meet their diversity needs by without allowing them to advance to that highest level. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I don't really have much more to say about this. I, it's, I mean, it's a business decision at the end of the day, and I understand that that's what's kind of motivating it. But you're right, it is. it does kind of change the, the notion of what the profession means, Yeah. at least at the top levels. Yeah. I mean, basically, if you're an income partner, if you have any kind of business mm -hmm. of your own, not, not like the kind of you're there just as a service, like a senior management level attorney, which also has its value. Sure. Don't get me wrong. But if you're being treated as an income partner and you have some manner of business, you probably should try to... Find somebody at that least, values that. <laughs> at least make sh at least shop around because yeah. there will be places who are willing to give you equity. Yeah, and there's there's a lateral feeding frenzy yeah. right now, and and I think that's true for all lawyers across the board. You should always know exactly how much you're worth. Yeah. All right. That Whoa. was well, that was the sensor beep. It wasn't that we said anything bad. That was just I'm testing different sounds. Fair enough. Fair yeah. Enough. So that was a weird one. We won't do that one. All right. Well, that's the end of my questions. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good, because we're kind of at the end of a show. It's almost like we planned this out. Almost. I mean, but, we didn't. But we didn't we at definitely all. definitely did No, not. we threw it together at the end. But not that we did. That's not really fair. We had written these questions. We just. Sure. We had not rehearsed. At some point before we, didn't we rehearse turned or, on the microphone. Right. We, we didn't rehearse or anything so that we would, wouldn't no. lose the spontaneity. Good, goodness, no. You can tell because I just stopped talking for about 20 seconds. That was weird. Really weird. But I'm glad you're okay. I couldn't come okay. up with the word Fine. Yeah. Fine, that F-I-N-E, that was the word I was struggling on. Yeah, but I'm glad you're okay. Here we are. Yeah. So if you are listening to this show, again, you should be subscribing to it, giving it reviews, yada, yada, yada. You should be reading Above the Law, listening to The Jabot, which is Catherine's podcast, which I got some guff from people because in a previous episode I threw- You talked smack about it, that's why. I did why. talk some smack. That but is why. I mean, I it was did, a clear reason. I didn't mean it that way. I meant- You I meant me it that way. But you know what? You meant it. But what happened, <laughs> pe you know, we got a good sense of your your loyal audience mm. because people backlashed. And so or in just the people end- who don't like when you're a jerk. That can't be because then no one would listen to the show. Uh, so- Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so listen to the Jabot, which is her podcast. Listen to the other offerings of Legal Talk Network. I'm, uh, you can follow it tw on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at, at Catherine One. Catherine One, spelled the way that uh, that it says on the uh, on K A T H R Y N. Yeah. See how much faster that was than trying to. <sighs> anyway, so do all of these things. And with that, I think we're done. Uh, next week, we'll have a guest and we'll chat a little bit about with a lawyer about their uh, career. Bye. Cool. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. 
and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.